Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Another morning, <sighs> another day of learning, trying to make it through this crazy thing called life. On this show, we bring you the tools, the ideas, the information you need to actually have a clue in life. It's one thing to get the news. It's another thing to kind of know what it means. For example... When I tell you the S&P 500 is down 35.27 points, is that good or bad? It's probably bad because it's down. Up is good, down is bad. It's not like a golf score? No. We're going to find out today. Is crude oil up? Is that good or bad? Depends on who you are. Gold is down. Again, if you have gold, yes. If you don't, eh. (laughs) (laughs) It all depends. Do you have the gold and the oil or don't you? Today, we're going to be talking about Stock Market 101. We're going to give you a crash course, everything you need to know about the stock market. Do you know about ham hock futures? I love ham hocks. Ham and beans. I always love when you get a detailed business report and they give you the stock market, then they go to the Chicago Board and Trade and give you the futures on wheat and barley and, and yeah. ham hocks. Mm. That's my favorite. The futures are my favorite because that's food. That I understand. Really? But don't make me talk about stocks who cares it's not food it's so rude so we're gonna learn about that today that's a big thing i mean how many times have you sat there and you're hearing him you know report the dow is down blah 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 and you're thinking hmm, so am i rich or not that's what i always ask am i rich so am i rich <laughs> <laughs> i call my broker am i rich yet nope you don't even have any stock yeah who are you why are you calling me that's rude. That's why I don't like my broker that I don't have. He's a jerk. You faceless person I've never met. You got to watch those guys. Yeah, they're shifty. Shifty. I gave one, I gave, I don't know, tons of money. I, I can't remember his name, Bernie something. Um, just gave millions to Bernie something. Next thing I know, it's all gone. And now you can't talk to him? You won't, you won't return he, he emails? Does, yeah, what's his name? Madoff? Yeah. Is that him? Was he your stockbroker? No, no. He's he, a jerk. He's a little preoccupied at the moment. I know. He doesn't even answer calls. I've like called forever. Something of a 150-year prison sentence. Yeah, they called that a trip. Yeah. He's on a trip to the big <laughs> house. Oh, so, it's so sad because you get scammed. Speaking of the stock market, yeah. apparently it dropped 333 points yesterday. See, that sounds bad. Yeah. It, it, it erased all the gains for 2015. So it dropped how much? 333. 333. Those, those seem like good numbers. 333. Yeah. Uh, but so it's down. So everything that we had gained since January lost. All of it's gone. We're back to January 1st. So it's as if we didn't even live any financial gains. It's like we hadn't lived since December, whatever. Since New Year's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's kind of too bad. Yeah. So as I'm reading this, it, tell, it says stocks fell more than 1% on Tuesday. As uncertainty over timeline for Federal Reserve rate hikes pushed the dollar to 12-year highs. Interesting. So the stock market fell, but the dollar was pushed to 12-year highs. So the dollar is higher than it's been in it 12 went up, years. 
Stock market a, dropped a but percent. That might be bad with the dollar rising. Oh, my head hurts. Why is it so... Crude oil settled yeah. at its lowest point since late February. The really? S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average wiped out year-to-date gains. The S&P 500 was down 1.3%. The Dow fell 1.4%. The Nasdaq slid 1.3%. The U.S. dollar surged to its highest level since 2003. So uh, everything falls, but the dollar rises. Uh, so am I rich? I don't know. James, take a note. Okay. Uh, call my broker, Madoff. Madoff? Bernie. Bern, oh, Bernard. Bern, okay. Uh, check in to see if I'm rich or not. Check in. Mm-hmm. Uh, over. Over and out. Okay. And let me know what he says. Mm-hmm. That's actually a task I'm giving you. So I, I hear reports like that on mm-hmm. the news. Every day. Every day. Don't know what they're talking about. No idea. So we'll ask our guest coming up at 7.15. Well, and it seems like, the, why does it matter about the dollar, quite honestly? Because we can just print more. That's been suggested before. I don't think that's a good idea. No. Because I'd be artificially pumping more money into the system. And that, uh, in so. my mind, my limited financial background uh-huh. seems like a negative. Well, I, I'm a, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a doctor. Yes. And you, you share that often. As a behavioral scientist, <laughs> it seems like just print more money. Okay. So maybe, maybe that's why behavioral scientists aren't really running the stock market. I think that's exactly why we're not. So we're going to talk to Dr. Craig Israelson. He's going to coach us through. He'll give us some, some other, doctor, other yeah. news overnight. 11 troops are presumed dead yes, in Florida after an Army helicopter crashed. <sighs> four of them, or seven are Marines. Four are members of the flight crew who were National Guard members. They uh, found some debris around 2 a.m. Mm. The helicopter was being used during a training exercise. So they are they they haven't found them yet. So they're presumed lost. There was another helicopter with them, and oh. I would assume that it might have uh, seen something. And they That's... have some more information they're not sharing at the moment as they're continuing to search. Okay. So well, we wish watch them that the story. Best. It'll continue to develop. Hillary's email excuses. Did you see what her <laughs> excuse was? Well, it's out of convenience. Convenience. Uh-huh. She didn't want to use two cell phones. Mm-hmm. So she had all her stuff condensed to one cell phone, and she had all her accounts there so she could deal with that way. And using her own server was, again, a matter of convenience. She had that uh, choice that she could make to use a private email or hers at the time. She needed to make sure all the important documents went to the right place. Right, which she did. She says. She, she, I guess, printed 50,000 pages of documents. And... I don't know if she knows this, but that's like 500 trees. <laughs> that's a lot of paper. <laughs> and the why would you not just give a disk? And then that way they could search all your emails. Why wouldn't you just give them a disk? Make a disk. I imagine because they're, she she didn't want to give in, she still doesn't want to give anyone access to the server. Yeah, but it's her server, she doesn't need to give people access to it. Like get your hands off my server. Right. So she's you know Trying to preserve her privacy and be Secretary of State at that time, and here's all the documents, and she says she went through and deleted all the ones that were uh, private in nature. Yeah. She said, you know, about planning her daughter's wedding, stuff dealing with, you know, who, correspondence uh, with Bill, her yoga honestly, classes. who deletes that stuff? I don't. My, but, my Google, my Gmail is packed. It's like 6,000 emails, and it's yeah. all full of, you know, random stuff. It just, I mean, in a way, I know what she's trying to do is she's just trying to tell everyone to leave her alone and yeah. stay out of my stuff. Except you don't delete all your most important stuff. And then there always will be the question, what 
guidelines did you use in deleting things? Yeah, yeah. She's you know so. You know what it reminds me of? It's like when somebody gets a tax bill and they fight the tax bill forever, and then when they finally have to pay the tax bill, they pay it in pennies. <laughs> I'll so, show you. <laughs> oh yeah, I owe you a million. Okay, I'll give you a million dollars of the pennies. So this will never end. Yeah, no. The whoever is running the you know inquiry into this is going to subpoena her, to get her server. This is what's going to happen. Just letting you know. And this will, do, and she'll fight this it. Is great. And, yeah, you know what's great is that this will never end, and that which means we'll have this to talk about. Yeah, and there'll be more stuff to talk. Oh, about. A good. Bill Clinton spokesperson told the Wall Street Journal yesterday that the former president still doesn't use email, and has only sent two emails yeah, in his I life. Heard that. Both as president, one to astronaut John Glenn, and another to U.S. troops serving in the Adriatic. There is he set up this server, but the server is for the people working for his foundation, so they have a So does Clinton. he not like have Clinton. a cell phone? Does he text? I don't know. I mean he's gotta text. He's gotta have some way to communicate with people. He's probably got a person that takes care of his cell phone for him. But isn't that weird? It's like it's almost like saying, James, take a note. Well okay. you do that every yeah. yeah. That's just weird. He probably communicates uh, via smoke signal. I wouldn't be surprised. That's yeah, that's the way they used to do it. Yeah. Smoke signal. <laughs> Smoke signal. Have you noticed it's not as popular anymore? Really? Yeah. But with satellite imaging, I think it'd be more efficient than ever. There's a second-hand smoke signal issue. So uh, they wanna, oh, that's yeah. a problem. Okay. That's a problem. Also, University of Oklahoma expelled the alleged ringleader of this 10-second video. <laughs> His name Good. has been exposed because he spoke to the media. His name is Parker Rice. He's, oh, a, fre- he's a freshman. Parker! You're telling me a freshman is somehow... In charge of this whole thing at a yeah, I don't a college. Usually, it's the seniors. So, you know what that is? That's part of the hazing program. So he, he, they haze the freshman and they get rid of him. He, he Parker has acknowledged his actions were wrong and reckless. Good and good. So he's and, out. There, there's another guy. They'll probably get him out, and they're hoping to, as but, the school goes through the video, identify more and get them out. Isn't it? But it seems like the way a fraternity works is it's not usually run by the freshmen. That was my impression. I know not being in a fraternity, yeah. but I would assume the upperclassmen have more influence. I mean, I know the upperclassmen on this show. We have, but we would if we had a problem, we would blame it on the freshman. Right, but wouldn't that be me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, it would. So we might want to rethink that idea. Well, maybe not. I mean, no. You like that? I like. Works it. for you. Working for me. Yeah, that seems weird. Something's something's not right with that. Poor guy got thrown under the bus. It's because he doesn't even have, he hasn't even taken a class yet. He's got one semester. But all the seniors that have been running the show forever, boom. Whatever. We're going to take a break. When we come back, my friends, Dr. Craig Israelson is going to join us. He is going to teach us Stock Market 101, the basics, my friends, a crash course. Maybe we ought not use the word crash with the word stock market, but a crash course in uh, everything you need to know about the stock market. Coming up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. I want to be rich. Not really. I just want to figure out what they're talking about when they say the S&P is up and the Dow is down and all that stuff. Do you feel like when the financial news comes on, do you feel like a fish out of water? You know, if you don't know the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P, 
Do you even know what that means? And if it's up, I guess that's a good thing, right? Do you sometimes wish you were the wolf of Wall Street? How about just being an adorable puppy of Wall Street? That'd be nice. The reality is most of us may not have a clue, and yet half of us or more are invested in the stock market. And we wanted to get some information, some insights. We've asked Dr. Craig Israelson to join us. He is, an exec- he is the executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University in Orem, Utah. He holds a Ph.D. in family resource management from Brigham Young University and is here on the line with us to teach us stock market basics 101. Dr. Craig Israelson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Pleased to be with you. Great to have you on board. And I mean, really, we hear it all the time. We hear it in the radio. There's a, I mean, on the radio, there's a, there's always some ticker going on. Our phones have apps specifically designed to help us track our money. And yet I feel like most of us don't have a really strong, solid understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about stocks. So where do we need to begin? When we think about the stock market and our investments, where should we begin? It's a great question. I think the um, the beginning point for some people is why the heck do we have a stock market? That's so true. <laughs> like, what what is it all about? I mean, we know it's a bunch of companies, right? That have that that are publicly traded and owned. But explain that. Yeah, well, and that's an interesting starting point when you use the word publicly traded. That uh, that may be a departure point right there for people in terms of their understanding, uh, and that's fair enough. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about uh, cross stitching, <laughs> and so uh, you know we all have our kind of our specialties. Essentially, if you think just in terms of Ben and Jerry, everybody knows that Ben and Jerry, a couple of guys from Vermont, decided to make some ice cream, and uh, they started out with their own money. They may have borrowed against their home, they may have uh, borrowed against their retirement accounts, whatever. But they used their own money to start the company. At some point, they run out of money. Just like a young boy or young girl who can't earn enough money delivering papers to pay for their all the costs of their life, I mean, just cold cereal. Yeah. Right? They, they can't make enough to pay their own expenses. That's how young companies are. And so they come to the, quote, the market looking for funding, looking for capital, money. And... As investors, we say, oh, I like that idea. I like uh, Raspberry uh, World Swirl, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, all these uh, exotic flavors that Ben and Jerry have introduced. And so they come to the capital market looking for money, and we say, we'll do it. And we invest in that company. So the stock market, from one perspective, is how young companies obtain funding to keep moving forward because they can't produce enough money on their own, their cash needs often exceed their ability to generate cash as a young firm. As they grow, they they have, they can produce enough money to carry themselves, but initially they need help. That's one view of the stock market. And, and so that's what when, – when we have an S&P – or a Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange are those all the are, are those do those all include companies that have come to get money and have now been given money and then you can invest in those companies? 
Yeah, essentially. I mean, that's an easy way to look at it. And so not all companies are public, meaning publicly traded. Right. It's not possible for the public to invest in them, such as Hallmark Cards. A lot of people like Hallmark Cards. Well, um, that has been, and I'm assuming it still is. I haven't checked on it recently, but that's a private company. I used to work for a grain company based in Paris, Louis Dreyfus. That's a private company. I can't invest in the stock. So there's a number of companies, some of which we've heard of, that are private. But the ones that we – there's a lot of companies that we think as household names. Those are public companies. At some point, they, they went public, said to the world, we need some funding. Right. right? We'll help. So the S&P 500 is a basket of 500 stocks primarily, almost exclusively, U.S. companies that represents an index. It's a, it's a collection of companies that allow us to say, you know, we're tracking these 500 companies, and based on how these 500 do, that's how we kind of say the market is doing. Hmm. So you, we use the S&P as like a gauge. Yeah, it's, it's referred to as a benchmark. Gauge is a good word. And, and that way, we have a smaller subset. There's roughly nine, ten thousand 10,000 stocks that trade uh, New York. I mean, there's a lot of, of companies. Rather than say, well, how is the whole market doing? You say, whoa, that's a lot of stocks. Uh, you know, if I give you that average, it's kind of like saying, what's the average temperature in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I can give you a number. It's just not very meaningful. Right. There's so much dispersion around that average. Where So the S&P 500 is, you know, that's large companies. That, that would be like part. big, like Coca-Cola's kind of big yeah. enterprises that we've all heard of. Right, right. right. And so that's a, that's a good measure of how large U.S. companies on average are doing if you want to know how small U.S. companies are doing, then a typical index for or gauge for that segment of the U.S. stock market would be the Standard & Poor's small cap 600. Hmm. So that's 600 companies. Now, you don't hear that one as often. The S&P 500, that's talked about a lot just in general um, on the radio, yeah. uh, TV, and the newspaper, and so forth. The S&P Standard Poor's small cap, cap meaning capitalization, 600, that's a very well-known index for researchers like myself, or the Russell 2000. That's 2,000 small companies. So What's the NASDAQ? Gauges. NASDAQ we- is a, a little different creature. The NASDAQ, whereas we have the New York Stock Exchange headquartered right there in New York, on, actually it's on Broad Street, but it's right near Wall Street, um, that's sort of the granddaddy of all stock exchanges, that as well as the Financial Times Stock Exchange in London, the Nikkei Exchange in Tokyo. These are very well-known, very long-running places where stock can be transacted. The NASDAQ is also referred to as the -the over-the-counter OTC market, and that's a network of brokers uh, connected electronically, almost like sort of like pre-Internet, all these brokers across the country, if not world, um, that are connected via terminals. 
And so that NASDAQ acronym stands for National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotations. Wow. And so whereas the New York Stock Exchange is a place, it's a building where traders come to execute the trades on behalf of people like us, the NASDAQ or over-the-counter market is a way that the broker in Seattle has a client, a broker in Tampa, Florida has a client. Those two brokers enter, uh, well, the broker in Seattle, his client uh, wants to sell IBM. Yeah. There's the broker in Tampa has a client, she wants to buy IBM. They both enter those orders into the NASDAQ system, computerized system. Ah, we have a match. So it's not a physical location. Yeah, it's, it's a network of okay. connected brokers. Is uh, so when we sit there and we hear that the Nasdaq is up, and the Dow is up, that is basically telling us that those uh, those those what do you call them? Those groups, indexes, indexes. Yeah. yeah, those indexes then are showing profit. Well, it means that more. Yeah, the Nasdaq. There's a Nasdaq index that is a, a subset of all the stocks that trade, mm-hmm. all the companies that trade on the NASDAQ um, uh, system. So there's a subset of stocks that are tracked. And if the majority of those stocks are up, we say the NASDAQ is up. Okay. That's kind of an interesting little nuance. Uh, when the S&P 500 is up, um, when the NASDAQ index is up, <laughs> the Dow Jones 30, which is 30 big companies, is up, all that means... Is is that as a as a composite number, as an aggregate number, there were more stocks that were up than were down. Interesting. It seldom means all five hundred. It almost never right. means all five hundred were up. Well, and it doesn't mean you're up because you may have chosen all of the ones that are down. Yeah, that's kind of where Murphy's Law sometimes. You yeah, know, it's interesting. It's almost like a. It seems like a construct of the media. Um, that uh, all of a sudden we, we use terms like NASDAQ. In, I mean, we use these terms, but in reality, it's just your market. And you may be doing well, but don't just assume you're doing well because the NASDAQ is up or the Dow Jones is up. We're going to take a break, come back and continue this discussion with Dr. Craig Israelson. He's teaching us the basics, 101 on the stock market. When we come back, we're going to get into 401ks. Everybody, you know, seems to be having one. Half the country basically is invested in some way, shape, or form, whether through your company or ever, and they're using the 401, their 401ks are directly tied to those stocks in each of those uh, areas that uh, Dr. Israelson's been talking about. We'll come back, talk about that. Plus, I want to know, is this any better than the lottery? I mean, is this better than the lotto? What's going on? Is it? Are, are we going to be successful if we just... Uh, have some basic understanding. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More when we come back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. It's the Matt Townsend Show. little Pink Floyd for you. Hey, do you feel like you have a clue about the stock market? I mean, a lot of people do, right? Half of us seem to be, you know, in some way, shape, or form invested in the stock market. And yet, I would bet if we gave a quiz, most people wouldn't 
probably be able to pass that quiz when it comes to understanding what futures are, what commodities are, why do we need to know the price of gold? Do we really? How does oil and the oil prices impact us? Did you know what the Nikkei was? Anyway, lots of different things we're trying to learn. And Dr. Uh, Craig Israelson is joining us. He is an executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University in Orem, Utah. Holds a Ph.D. in family resource management from Brigham Young University. He's here right now to teach us about investment. In fact, if you want more information about Dr. Israelson, go to his website, 7, the number 7, then spell out 12portfolio.com, 712 portfolio.com. You can get information about uh, everything he does, as well as reports and other things uh, that are there and some books that he's written. So, Dr. Israelson, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Keep teaching us. So we we have uh, a stock market we've talked about. We have different types of kind of in, indices and uh, you know, the NASDAQ is kind of just a different, uh, inst- or a different um, network, I guess. Uh, talk to us about how all of this plays out in our 401ks. Because if if my yeah. company's giving me a 401k or, and, and I'm investing in a 401k through my company, they might be matching what I invest. And then what happens to all the, my money that is coming from my company? Yeah, great question. A little tidbit of history. We, we refer to it as a 401k, and, and that's a good way. And it is called that called that because that's that's where the uh, legislation that created the ability for a company to sponsor a retirement plan huh. is noted in congressional record 401k interesting <laughs> and uh, so it used to be the pension plan right it used to be how we would we'd we'd be given a pension now it's it's uh-huh. changed and called the 401k yeah and in the broadest brush um way of thinking about the evolution of things uh, years ago, our grandparents, even our parents, they worked for a company for 40 years, and then they retired, and they had a pension. Yeah. And the company paid the pension. Well, uh, that's not how things work now. There there are still some legacy type of companies that off, do offer pensions, but the, the vast majority of people in their 30s, even in their 40s, uh, they're going to be in a situation where their retirement is their responsibility, hmm. meaning the 401k has to be funded. The money has to be put in by the individual. Years ago, a, a person didn't, they didn't put money into their pension account. That's what the company did. Hmm. And then the amount you got in retirement was a function of how much you were paid at that company and how long you worked. There was a formula. Right. Now the formula is, oh, forget about pensions. If you want to have a retirement account, it's on you, mm. and that's the 401k. Now, the, the company does participate in many cases. They also contribute money to a worker's 401k, but not in every situation. There yeah. are plenty of companies that don't. They don't have a, quote, a match. So the, the 401k is a wonderful opportunity for a worker, whether at a university, a corporation, wherever, they, if they work for a company that sponsors a 401k plan, participate. That, that's rule number one. Even if, they don't, even if the company doesn't provide a match, you're still investing that money in a tax-deferred way. Yeah, you're not going to pay taxes on it until you start using that money later. 
Right, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So now the question becomes, so the first issue is, gee, should I do it? Answer, yes. Yes. <laughs> Second question, um, what investments should I choose? And, and so it's, it's kind of like a, a cafeteria. You walk into a cafeteria, you walk down uh, in front of all the food, and you pick what you want. And that's called the cafeteria plan. Right. And that's kind of nice to be able to have choice yeah. rather than just having a, a plate handed to you. The problem with choice is kind of like the old mover, movie gallery dilemma. person walks in. This is, of course, before Redbox. I mean, you walk in a big uh, store, and there's a zillion videos. <laughs> it's overwhelming. Yeah, I just can't decide, and you bail. Yeah. You, you go home, and you, you just sit uh, in the hammock. Read a book. And so... That's one of the dilemmas of a, for some, in a, in a 401k plan, they see all these mutual funds on the brochure that the person in human resources or employee benefits has given to them, a little packet of information about the dental plan, the health plan, the retirement plan. Right. It all comes and it's a bit overwhelming. So uh, just a couple of general ways to think. Number one, this, having decided, I want to participate, I want to prepare for my retirement, that's a good choice. Second choice, I need to diversify. So just like an exercise plan, just like a diet, any kind of diet we go on needs to be diversified. It doesn't make sense to just eat broccoli. And so how can I diversify? Ah, well, you look at the different mutual funds on the list in the 401k plan, some of those, many of those mutual funds are going to invest in large U.S. companies. So, so the mutual funds are explain that because they're not necessarily a stock; it's a portfolio, right? That, yeah, that's exactly. invested in a, in a variety of different business or enterprises or investments that are yeah, designed to make money. Precisely, and they're they're kind of like um, what was so fun that my mom would come home with the. Uh, these little boxes of cereal, just little micro yeah. boxes of cereal yeah. that were all shrink-wrapped together, and they're all different kinds of cereal, Cocoa Krispies, Sugar Pops, and, uh, and, and then there's an all-bran thrown in there just to, <laughs> to knock the kid off his game. And, the, uh, and that's a mutual fund of cereal. Yeah. So it's a bunch of different cereals all packaged together. That's a mutual fund. It just happens to be of cereal. A mutual fund of stocks is a bunch of different stocks uh, assembled together into a portfolio. Hmm. And a very common mutual fund is a mutual fund that mimics, it copies the S&P 500. Okay. That's called an index fund. Now, there's lots of different, there's thousands of different indexes. The S&P 500 just happens to be probably the most well-known. Right. And because it's the most well-known, that means a lot of mutual fund companies have thought it wise to offer a mutual fund that mimics that particular index. And so an index, uh, investing via index funds, index mutual funds, is a perfectly good idea. Uh, there are other approaches where the manager has more discretion, the manager of the fund has more discretion to buy and sell and not have to uh, track or you know always be mimicking a certain index. Um, but yeah. that's, a, that's a relatively small issue. The, the, the primary issue is um, to build a, a, a collection, to assemble a collection of mutual funds that are different. 
So just like just like salsa, we're making salsa here. Yeah, and uh, we had tomatoes, we had onions, and so we want mutual funds that are different types of ingredients for the salsa we're making. Because a well diversified portfolio of mutual funds is very analogous to salsa. Because if you run out of if you run out of peppers, you can still have a pretty good salsa. It just would be a little different. It's just less risk if you're diversified, right? So you're, yeah, you're not exactly. wholly dependent on only sugar cereals or only brands. You've, you've mixed the you've mixed it enough that if brands not available, we'll put something else in there. Sure. Yeah. This this isn't um, this isn't rocket science in terms of all the pieces have to fit exactly and and uh, the propellant has to be a certain temperature. I mean, mm-hmm. th- these are combinations of mutual funds, and a mutual fund itself is a broad collection of different stocks uh, and a different area of uh, focus. Maybe it's not just U.S. companies in one mutual fund, but there's another mutual fund that focuses on non-U.S. stocks. Oh, so that's important. Yeah. And so there's some really key, as in salsa, there's some really key ingredients. And then you always there, I guess. So, so then we get our comp. And the benefit of this is we usually have our company, you know, is kind of coaching us through it. They might they might even simplify our options. We could always go out and take our money and and or the four hundred one k and and invest it probably with more freedom and liberty. Or you can kind of follow there. We have three different buckets. Uh, kind of an aggressive investing plan, a more conservative plan, depending on where you are. Let's say we get into the market and we get uh, we, we we're invested. How do we how do we not? I mean, is there just a general rule that we should follow? It seems like you got to play this market long term. You can't oh, just be. I mean, and the funny thing is, is you can keep moving your money around, but you might just be paying for your broker, really, or you depending on how this works. But you really want to stay in for the long haul, and and what, what any other philosophies while when, once we're invested? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, investing is like planting an oak tree. This is going to take a while. Yeah, you're not going to be building a tree for it, i.e., a retirement life. You know, in this oak tree for a number of years, and so to hover. Don't be a helicopter investor. Don't hover over this portfolio. Don't micromanage it. You know, if you're in your 20s, that means you're investing for, well, in some cases, 50 years. Yeah. I mean, a young generation today won't be retiring until they're probably 70 or 75. Uh, and so it, to, to hover and pay attention to the day-to-day or week-to-week or even month-to-month volatility, you know, ups and downs of one's portfolio is an exercise in lunacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just makes no sense. It's like strapping a, a camera to the the helmet of, uh, you know, the head of a uh, 12-year-old scout as they head <laughs> off to scout camp. I guarantee you, you don't want to see <laughs> everything that that 12-year-old did. That's exactly you know, right. And the risks that they took. And so... Um, <laughs> It's just it's, too much. No, it's just over. You're oversaturating yourself with noise. I mean, I guess unless you love it. So there, there's these other people that they love the stock market. They they're they're changing their. I mean, they're just into it and they're into it deeply. I guess that's one level. But for the average Joe, 
it's you're making sausage. You don't necessarily want to see what went in it. Yeah, and so that's that's a philosophical commitment on the part of the investor. You know, they they build a diversified 401k menu. They have a U.S. a fund, mutual fund that invests in U.S. companies, maybe one that just large companies like the S and P 500. Then they choose another fund that invests in U.S. small companies. Then another mutual fund that invests in bonds. Okay, that then bonds behave very differently than stocks. That's where you get some diversification. Right. Maybe one that invests in real estate. Uh, a mutual fund that invests in non-U.S. companies. If they have a commodities fund, consider that because that those behave very differently. And so you get this blended mix of mutual funds. And they'll take turns being the hero. And one of the key commitments is don't bail out on the fund that is currently being the dog, you know, the yeah. underperformer. They just take turns. And the way to harvest some good out of the ups and downs of the various mutual funds is just to rebalance. Hmm. In other words, uh, there, there's a mantra in investing. It's buy low. <laughs> Sell high. I've heard that. Well, who knew, right? Yeah, and weird. So, what we what we do when we rebalance the components of our overall portfolio is that we're selling high, buying low. We're right. just reversing. It's the same logic. We're just reversing the words. And so you have five mutual funds. Two of them have had a really great year. They now have a higher allocation in your overall mix than what you started with. Mm-hmm. And if you want to maintain that uh, 20% allocation to each of those five funds, you're going to need to uh, take some of the money out of the ones that have performed best and, and put that money into the worst performers. That's what rebalancing is. There you go. And then, then yeah, it, I mean, it, it seems like the way the market's going to work, it's, it's kind of, it's going to inherently balance. I mean, unless you are making some extreme decisions these the people that are putting together the mutual funds they've thought it through they've they've uh they've they thought it through so balance and one of the things i wanted to do let's take a break we'll come back talk more with dr craig israelson i want to come back and find out how we don't get bernie madoff and um do we need to worry about how our brokers work um, is there a better way to choose a broker or, and somebody that's going to help you make these decisions? Um, I want to talk about that. Also, do we need to also worry about gold? We hear a lot of commercials on the radio about buying gold and silver, even real estate, other ways that we might be able to uh, save some money or put some money away. We'll come back more with Dr. Craig Israelson talking about the stock market and investing 101. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM. 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Trying to make sense of the stock market, we've asked Dr. Craig Israelson to join us. Uh, Dr. Israelson is uh, an executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University. He also has a Ph.D. in family resource management from Brigham Young University. Go to his website, uh, which is the number 7, 12 Portfolio, 7, 12 Portfolio. 
The rest is all spelled out. 712 Portfolio. And you can find out more about Dr. Craig Israelson. Craig, welcome back to the show. Thanks. So we've got uh, – we have our mutual funds. We have our 401k invested. How do we make sure we that the people are helping us, that, that are helping us, that they're not going to Bernie Madoff us, that they're not going to steal our stocks, or they're not going to just keep turning my, my stocks so that they can keep making more money, you know, investing my money, but in the end I walk away with nothing? Well, it's probably – I'm not going to – it, it's it's hard to say there's a hundred percent guarantee against that, but we can get darn close to a hundred percent guarantee by working with uh, fund families, mutual fund families that are, uh, boy, as, as well respected as as can be. Uh, Vanguard, for example, back in Pennsylvania, uh, just an excellent fund family. T. Rowe Price. T. Rowe Price is located in Baltimore, Dodge and Cox in the San Francisco area. So by investing yeah. in those families, they're, 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 you're going to see that they have a fairly consistent rate of return, and they're, they're pretty solid. Well, they just have a lot of skin in the game. Um, where you, what I mean by that is they have hundreds of thousands of clients fidelity and invest you know fidelity in yeah. boston another well-known probably the, that's the biggest mutual fund company i suspect on the planet uh, schwab uh, the, based in san francisco these these firms they if if there's a mistake made if there's a rogue trader if there's a rogue individual uh, that's going to be taken care of they usually weed them out yeah and you'll be made whole bernie madoff was really operating as a lone wolf, and so, and and as such, it doesn't mean a lone wolf is is going to fleece you. It just they they don't have a there's not a system of checks and balances that you have in in a larger mm. structure, right? And that doesn't mean that larger structures are always going to be perfect, but it means that they have the capacity, and because they have skin in the game, if they have a situation that's uh, obviously not right. They're going to fix it because they have literally multiple billions of dollars at risk if they don't take care of a problem. Yeah, and so that's at least that's the approach of uh, an employer like BYU or UVU or any number of universities or corporations. They contract. They they allow these big mutual fund companies to come in and be the providers on their 401k hmm. plan. Right. And then we pick off the, the menu, gee, we'd like uh, this particular Vanguard fund, this particular Vanguard fund, or maybe it's Fidelity, and we go through a lineup uh, choices yeah. uh, among their mutual funds that they offer. And the key is to not just pick tomatoes. <laughs> Even if you just right? love tomatoes. Even if you love tomatoes, that's not salsa. So pick mutual funds that focus on different asset classes or, or types of investments, stock, bonds, real estate, commodities, and then pick them around the globe. Hey, Craig, we have about a minute. Talk about what's the one thing we need to pay attention to um, when it comes to the stock market, just the average citizen. What, what would you say the one thing that, that makes the biggest difference in the game? Well, I'm going to cobble together a couple of ideas yeah. to, and call it one thing. 
Number one, start. Start small, even if, if that's you can do $10 a month, start with that. Yeah. If you can't afford the mutual fund threshold, put it in a savings account at a bank. Number two, diversify. Don't just focus on any one particular type of mutual fund. Pick a collection of mutual funds. And three, save, set a goal to save at least 10% of your income each year. Yeah. And if you can, save 15%. There's a great book, The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah, I love that book. Read that book. And the characteristic of millionaires, right, and they, and they live next door. Yep. Meaning, what? Really? Them? Yeah, yeah. they're not millionaires. <laughs> the most common characteristic is they saved about 15% of their income. Regular jobs, beautiful, regular people, they just were consistent savers. And that's in a, so you save consistently 10 to 15% of your income in a diversified portfolio of mutual funds, you win. You're in. You win the game. Dr. Craig Israelson, we so appreciate you. Again, everybody go to his website, 7, the number 7. 12portfolio.com, 712portfolio. You can get more information. He has a bunch of popular documents and downloads you can use there as well to learn. But really, it's just basics, 101. That book, The Millionaire Next Door, one of the greatest books I've ever read. The average uh, millionaire next door is driving a used car that is about 10 years old. So when you look at your neighbors that are pulling in with their really nice brand new car, odds are they're not a millionaire. The millionaire next door has been putting money away. They've been socking it away, 10% of their income. They uh, they usually don't have, a, you know, a huge, you know, monstrous house. They just, they're just living comfortably. They're not usually showy. And the reality is um, stock market's confusing, but in a way it can be simplified. If you have a company that's backing you and doing a 401k, get involved in it, understand it, understand at least enough to get invested and use that as your as a tool or a resource. If you're the other fifty percent of the country that that isn't that doesn't have that for whatever reason, just do what uh, what we were just advised to do. Let's just start saving. Let's just start putting some money away, ten percent of our income, and then eventually we can invest it in gold or money or uh, whatever oil, whatever you got. We're going to take a break, my friends. Wrap it up for this hour. When we come back, more tools, more ideas, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, the show where we give you the tools, the ideas, the skills, the hope in life. You know, sometimes you just, life is hard and you need more, uh, you need more resources, more insight. Never easy, is it? But this show, we're going to give you the tools. Because you know why? None of us know it all. Even even James and I, we don't know it all. Do we, James? Uh, that, as surprising as that may be. I mean, it's weird. I know. We've made a million notes and memos. Yeah, we, we, all, we know 
Almost all of it. Almost all of it. We know. But we don't know. We don't know it all. Yeah. Technically. I mean, technically, if we're going to mince words, because we got to get the words right. Yeah. So that's what I'm learning about all of the politics that we've been covering. It's all about wording. Mm-hmm. You know, what you and I like to do, we, a lot of what we like to do is out of convenience. Yeah. Just uh, I don't like things to get in the way of my yeah. convenience. Could we have made better decisions? Sure. But they weren't convenient. They weren't convenient. <laughs> and did we make a mistake? I'm not going to say we did or we didn't. It's not about mistakes. It's about learning, and we've learned. Mm-hmm. And what we learned is we should have done it differently. It's all in the language. I'm telling you. Language is a powerful thing. Today on the show, we are also going to get into finding hope. How do you find hope when the world's falling around you? We have a great guest. Darla Isaacson's going to join us, and uh, she's written a book um, called Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide, Opening Your Heart to the healing God can give. Uh, She's going to talk about the loss of one of her children and how she found hope. It's really a tough thing. More and more today, suicides on the rise uh, in certain communities and cities across the country. Uh, There's just lots of teens doing it, a lot of kids. 41,000 suicides were reported um, last year, actually in 2013. And so it's, it's it's a big deal. Basically, about every 12 to 13 minutes, uh, someone dies from suicide. So something we've got to work on and deal with, and we'll be talking about that later in this hour. But uh, before we do that, let's get to some of the headlines, find out what's going on in the world. We talked before about Hillary Clinton and her emails. Yeah. And they're Alleged. concerned about a, yeah. her She's server. Learned. She yeah. was using private email. Was she getting all the proper documents recorded and documented in the uh, government systems? Um, a lot of our email, we... I think as a society, have to just sort of accept that the NSA is sifting through them. You bet. That's I, you know what I even do. I even leave secret messages for them. Do you? Hey guys, you'll like this one. <laughs> Read this one. So the NSA yesterday was sued by a whole grundle of different groups. Really, led by Wikimedia, who holds who operates Wikipedia online. The company is called Wikimedia. Wikimedia. They're suing along with several other groups like the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. Wow. They're suing the NSA over their spying. The plaintiffs claim First and Fourth Amendment violations related to the NSA's domestic spying, specifically its large-scale search and seizure of internet communications. Hmm. So what do you think the success rate of this lawsuit will be? Zero percent. You'd have to have evidence. And the NSA is going to claim national security. Yeah. What? 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 I mean, what? You're dealing with the NSA. Yeah. I mean, do they not watch, like, born identity? Do they not watch all of these great spy shows? It's the NSA. Right. If it gets really bad and you corner somebody and you take them to court, they're just going to eat one of those little capsules and die right there. Cyanide? Yeah. I think so. That's how this played. I'm cornered. Die. No, they're not going to do that. I don't think it's going to get to court. I don't think so either. Or if it does, we'll never hear about it because it's the NSA. And remember, this isn't new. I mean, ever since you had the rotary phone, you used to have operators listening to you all the time. Right. And they weren't the government. That was just Gladys who worked at the telephone company. Nobody cared back then. In other news, Facebook has officially recognized that fat isn't a feeling. 
I feel fat. After a change.org petition, Facebook is uh, removing its feeling fat status update option, receiving more than 16,000 signatures wow. protesting it. So it would say happy, sad, feeling fat. So you're not allowed to feel fat. You're not allowed to feel fat anymore. At least on Facebook. Facebook listened to its complainants. The uh, petition said that fat is not a feeling and encourages bad body issues. That's true. Why don't, do they have one that says, I feel hot? Um, I don't know. I would have to use Facebook Messenger. So, Yeah. I feel hot right I now. just text the people I need to message. <laughs> Works better that way for you me. You must have a life. Well, sort of. Okay. Um, a jury has ordered Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke to pay $7.3 million to the family of Marvin Gaye for copyright oh, infringement. This busted. is a case going on in Los Angeles. It's kind of a big deal when you're looking at music and how yeah. music is created. Uh, the verdict found that the pair's 2013 hit Blurred Lines copied the sound from Marvin Gaye's 1977 song, Got to Give It Up. Mm. I've never really heard Got to Give It Up. Me, no. I, I pulled it up on YouTube the other day, listened, and went, yep, they copied it. You could hear it? My opinion, absolutely. The first just about 20 seconds of the song, you're like, I can hear Blurred Lines in there. This, it's, you know, you, I, I know that song, Blurred Lines. Yeah. And then you, you hear Marvin Gaye's song, you're like, yeah, that's too close. But they, they just said, hey, we're just being artists. Now, there's, there's sampling where you take a piece of the song, but you get permission to do that. Yeah. So the problem here is there was no permission. And yeah. they said there was like, how'd they put it? They said uh, Williams, one of the uh, creators of the song, contended in court that the two songs share feel, not infringement. It feels similar, but it's not. Yeah. We're not infringing. No, no. So here's the example. But he did admit, admit listening to the, as they called it, juxtaposed bass lines that it sounds like you're playing the same thing. Well, they lost. Yes. But it's the equivalent of like going to the store where they have a little lady there in a hairnet helping, giving out samples. If she hands you a sample, that's sampling. If you go break into the freezer section and start opening a box and eating one. Of the same thing, that's stealing. Yes. Sampling, little old lady in a hairnet. Stealing, breaking into the freezer. Yeah. So, and there's all it's diff- different. There's all different. What it comes down to, there wasn't permission granted or given that's or right. asked for. And no hairnet. No hairnet. The song Blurred Lines has grossed almost $16 million since it's released. Is it, that all? It, it was nominated for uh, Record of the Year. At the 2013 Grammys was the number one on Billboard singles charts for 10 consecutive weeks. It's only made sixteen million. Well, no one's buying albums anymore. They buy singles. And well, singles no, cost a dollar twenty nine. A dollar twenty nine of that was mine. I blurred the line. <laughs> but it's interesting. So they're going to make seven point four million yeah. of that sixteen million. Half. They're taking if they had that. just sampled with the old lady, they probably would have had to pay a couple million. Right. A royalty, like ten percent. You pay a royalty and you move on, now they have to pay more. <laughs> Honesty, always the best policy. I've found that. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you tell lies and then it just sort of comes back and, yeah, and gets you. If you own it up front, you deal with it, and you move on. What's, what do we always say, James? Right, don't write this down, but what okay. do we always say? Yeah. Don't, don't blur, blur the, the lines. lines. Ever. Because blurred lines means mean big, big fines. Fine. Big fines. Blurred we say lines. that all the time. All the time. Yeah. Blurred lines well means known. big fines. Big fines. A uh, report out yesterday found that 6.5 million people with active Social Security numbers are at least 112 years old. <laughs> How many? 6.5 million. Wow! 
What they're saying is there's active social security numbers, 6.5 of them with people born in 1901 and before. Man. They've been used to open fraudulent bank accounts while thousands of others have been used by undocumented immigrants to apply for jobs. One person, for example, opened a bank account with a number of a person born in 1869. The Social Security Administration says it will work to prevent multiple people from using the same number. Who says that Who says that we're an unhealthy group of people? We're living to 112. 6.5 I mean, million of us, apparently. Seriously. Yeah, so people are using really old Social Security numbers that for some reason are still active. <laughs> the great thing, too, is these really old people are very financially conscious. That is yes. amazing. A so, lot yeah. of them, a lot of them um, are working in border towns. Who would think we'd have all of our – I guess that's where they're going. They're they going down – south. It's retirement. Yeah, they all move south. Yeah. It's warmer down there. Better weather. <laughs> so messed up. What is going on with America? So they just need to police the uh, record keeping a little bit better. There. Yeah, they do. I mean, hypothetically. Allegedly. Watch your social security number. Hey, when you die, make sure that they turn off your social security number so it doesn't just – it's not the gift that keeps giving. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we have a special guest joining us. Darla Isaacson is, is here. She is going to share her story of recovery, basically, and, and grieving through some, some difficult times, a divorce, a suicide of one of her children. She's just here to teach us what she learned. Every one of us are going through pain through our lives, and uh, sometimes we need to just understand how to find hope amidst all the darkness. That's up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the difficult things in life, obviously, is the loss of somebody that we care about, um, especially when it's by suicide. And and it's such a hard thing because a lot of us, we don't know what to say. People, you don't know what to think. How real are you supposed to be? So we end up maybe not being real, not being whole, not being complete, not being able to even mention it or talk about it because we might feel... Uh, weird. So it impacts our grieving process. And one of the things, remember, we try to do on the show is make sure that you have real-life tools, tools that you can use to to help you get through life. And so whether it's a suicide or just a death of somebody dear to you or a divorce, but if you need to grieve, there are some powerful ways to do it. And our next guest has uh, written a book on it, Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide, where she shares her recovery process while also including some of her religious experiences. Uh, Her name is Darla Isaacson. She's the author of three books and um, is is just—I found her reading an article in um, a a local newspaper, and she just talked about her son's suicide. And I thought, how appropriate that we we could learn— we can learn from those that are grieving and use their, their abilities, their, their skills to help the rest of us. So, Darla Isaacson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to have this opportunity. It is, it's great to have you on. Again, sorry for your loss. Your, your son, um, he, he committed suicide how many years ago? It was September 27, 2004. Mm. 
And does it talk, just maybe teach us talk about that that your story and that feeling and and that process that uh, that got you to the point of writing a book. Well, uh, on that day, three plainclothes members of the local police department appeared at my door to bring me that awful news that my son Brian, who was 33 at the time, was dead by his own hand. And it's it's just hard to describe the shock and grief and confusion you feel when you get that kind of news. I yeah. just, And I just felt like my heart was literally bleeding for a long time. But because I've been a writer for decades, even that first week I began recording the details of my experience, just pouring my heart out on the page, you know. Mm. And then over a period of years, because I'm inclined this way, I read everything I could get my hands on that would give me understanding and hope in regard to this tragedy. And I, I just searched the scriptures, too, in a whole new way and found so much comfort there for the Psalms became a place of refuge for me, for example, repeating verses such as, Be still and know that I am God, often gave me what I needed just to keep going. Huh. It, so that... Eventually, I, I compiled the most important things I'd learned and wrote the book I just wished I'd had been able to find at the time and couldn't, a book that is told in the framework of my personal experience, and it, it summarizes the solid psychological help from dozens of sources, but much more importantly, it's the only book I know of on this subject that is scripture-based and points the reader to God as the only source of true healing and help and comfort. So you, you, it's interesting how you went about it. You kind of used your strength of being a writer to process your pain. And, and, oh, yes. That, that was just such an important piece of my puzzle. And then you also studied, and yet, and you're also a person of faith, so you were already, you know, reading the Bible and scriptures, so you, you had that going on. Um, t- talk about, talk about your process. I mean, I know you've, you've kind of pieced together a process that includes God and, and your faith and your belief system, along with just some kind of tried and tested, you know, uh, grieving skills and tools. How do you, you, what did you learn? How do you go about dealing with that grief? Well, the uh, the first thing that we have to realize with when a person is facing this kind of thing is is that we each find ourselves, it's it's like um, we have had a rope of faith that's been coiled at our feet, and suddenly it's all you have to hold on to, and you're hanging over that rope by a over a precipice, and anyone who's experienced the reality of the suicide of a loved one is familiar with that precipice and with wondering if the rope of our faith is, is strong enough to hold us when we have nothing else to hang on to. Yeah. And, and so in, in the months and years that followed, I found myself on a, a spiritual journey, and it, it's like it went deeper than anything I'd ever before experienced, and I felt like my life depended on gaining understanding and a more solid faith, even though I'd had a really solid faith. And it's, it's been the most difficult time of my life, yet in some ways the most beneficial. And uh, I, I, I have been able to let go of the pain as part of, of this spiritual journey. And as far as the healing process, um, there's, there's a special tip that I would like to offer to anyone that is on this healing journey that the only true healing comes from him. And the subtitle of my book is Opening Our Hearts 
to the healing only God can give. Hmm. And, and so the most important thing is to keep turning toward God and not away from Him. There's a tendency to kind of get angry at God and say, why did this happen, you know, and, and turn away. But I've learned that the, the help and comfort from God comes simply from choosing to hang on to the truth that you already know and getting more, the truth of His love, no matter how bad circumstances may be. And as long as we keep doing that, we'll continue to heal. Darla, how did you do that? So when you, when you, um, you, you say keep turning toward God, specifically when you were in a, you know, maybe a bout of pain or guilt that maybe you could have done more or thought you should have done more, what, how specifically did you turn to God? Well, that is, is a, a wonderful question because it is such an important part of the whole thing. Uh, this guilt thing is, is huge when you have somebody that you are so close to that dies of suicide. And, and so t- this process of overcoming that is a, a combination of turning to the Lord and getting the facts. Which do you want me to talk about first? <laughs> let's, let's, let's start uh, with the facts first, and then, okay, then uh, we'll come back. We'll take a break and know, then come back and do the other. Uh, I immediately, of course, like most parents or spouses or, or loved one of, of someone that kills themselves, I immediately wondered what part of it was my fault, what I could have yeah. done differently that might, might have prevented this. And it seems like natural reaction to such a tragedy is to try to find reasons for what's happened to someone to blame, most often ourselves, and blame's all about guilt. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the hardest things in the aftermath of suicide is widespread guilty feelings. Even those who worked with Brian only for three months where on his new job felt guilt, and they'd come to me saying, what could I have done or said, you know, that would have made a difference? We all felt like right. we, there should have been something we could have done or said. Well, the education that pulled me out of that was extensive. For example, in my book, I, I tell about a Reader's Digest report of a, a course for survivors of suicide, and uh, by su- survivors, I mean those who are left behind. Mm-hmm. In this course, they teach that it's usually the improper functioning of the brain, not the situation, not what people have said or done, that people who complete suicide have in common. And, and to, to really validate that, think about that millions of people suffer from depression and addiction and don't uh-huh. take their own lives. Right. Millions more have unbelievable trials and heartbreak, even abusive parents or spouses, and they're still alive. However... A combination of factors, physiological, psychological, environmental, and genetic, can sometimes converge at a critical moment when someone's brain isn't functioning right, and it can push them over the edge. And the article called it kind of a brain attack. Hmm. The basic premise of the article that I found validated in many other sources as well is that anyone with a healthy functioning brain has a strong survival instinct, and that chemical imbalance and malfunction of the brain play a major part in most suicides. Consequently, some say that suicide victims die of a physical illness just as surely as if they died of a heart attack. But, of course, Matt, every situation is different because of the myriad factors involved, and education concerning those contributing factors was extremely important and helpful to me. And um, maybe it's because we humans are so inclined to make wrong assumptions when sure. we don't know the facts. It's true. We grasp for explanations, and, and I was doing that. I was just going, 
how could this happen? I need to know. I need to understand. I have a, a chart in my book created by my editor, who is a behavioral health specialist who worked with suicidal people in the psych ward at the hospital. Hmm. And she did such a great job of, of making a clear representation of the many factors contributing to major depression, which is especially applicable because major depression is the one thing suicide victims are most likely to have in common. Though uh, statistics vary, most sources report that as high as 90% of those who complete suicide were suffering from severe depression, and of course that's a form of mental illness that yeah. can make life a living nightmare. Right. And, and that often leads to other contributing factors such as substance abuse and so on. So each circle of the chart is intertwined, showing the, the connection between biological, environmental, psychological, spiritual areas. But, you know, without these facts and seeing that there's all these contributing factors that we have no control over, we're just so inclined to get a distorted view of the cause and effect in this situation. But my research led me to conclude that what I did or did not do or what anyone else did or did not do did not cause Brian's suicide. And I just want anyone who is listening who has felt that guilt and self-blame to know that what you did or didn't do did not cause your mm. loved one's suicide. That is such great. I mean, that really is. So, yeah, it's just vital for those grieving yeah. to be able to set aside that inappropriate guilt. And it's so... Um, it's so uh, we, we lack the information, don't we? And, and because we don't have the information, then all of a sudden we're left to make it up and and, and to feel that guilt. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion with Darla Isaacson. Finding hope while grieving suicide, some of the great lessons she's learned about um, you know educating, finding out more information. But then also when we come back, we're going to talk about how she was able to, to turn it over to her, her God, to her beliefs in God and how that helped her to find the peace and the hope. More on uh, hope when we come back, right here on The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about a a difficult subject, and yet 41,000 people uh, in 2013 committed suicide. They killed themselves. And many times um, the death, it's tragic, uh, and and it's also so empty because there's no explanation. There's just a lot of questions and a lot of people left in the wake that are feeling guilty and feel, you know, grief. And they need help to process through it. And again, just as people, we aren't very effective at helping others grieve. We're not good at mourning with those that mourn, especially something like a suicide, because, uh, you know, there's sometimes there's judgment about it. Sometimes there's confusion and even even like embarrassment that how did this happen? How did what happened here? So we've got a, a great uh, resource for us. Darla Isaacson is joining us. If you go to her website, uh, DarlaIsaacson.com, you can find more out about all of the books she's written. But one book that we're talking about today is Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide. Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide, Opening Your Heart to the Healing Only God Can Give. And Darla's son, in um, about uh, 
uh, how many years ago? Eleven years ago, I guess. Yeah, well, it was ten years ago last uh, last September. Yeah, committed suicide, and it, it started you on this journey where you had to go figure it out, and and you found through the process that one thing we talked about before the break is education. You needed some answers, so you started studying it and researching it. And one of the things you, you, you taught us, I think, beautifully, probably in a way I haven't heard before, is simply the idea that many people uh, share depression in common, but only certain people would actually get to the point of being able to kill themselves, and those people all have uh, other issues going on in their brain. There are certain parts of their brain like that strong survival instinct that just isn't there. That's correct. And, of course, uh, the, the thing I want to make the biggest point about today is the spiritual side of the yeah. journey. Yeah, let's talk about that. It's so important, but we can have all the facts <clears throat> and still be sitting there with a, a broken heart yeah, and no not peace. know where to go with it. Right. And, and so I think that the most important thing that we can look at today is the uh, healing journey that all of us can go on by turning our hearts to God and knowing that just because we have faith doesn't mean we're not going to grieve, that He understands, right. and that we, by writing, by praying, we can, we can find a real connection there and find out that that he cares, he loves us, and he'll help us through this whole process. Because it really ends up creating a lot of questions, a suicide does, because especially if you believe in God, um, because then all of a sudden you start asking, well, why didn't God prevent it? And where is my child now? Are they still in the pain? You know, all of these kind of questions start to open up. So it, it would almost make sense that you'd naturally turn to God, at least to like, you know, suffer the pain or, or, or maybe get angry at God. Tell us how you turn it so that we actually find hope and peace with our God. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing is to recognize that uh, God was never somewhere else when this happened. He was right there loving that person and loving all of us that so were left behind. But uh, something that we often don't take into consideration is that even though God could have controlled it all, God wouldn't be God if he stepped in and stopped those about to make grievous choices. Right. He just doesn't give selective freedom of choice. It's absolute. And, and so uh, the thing that he does is offer the comfort and learning and growth and, and all the good things that come before. But the, probably my most favorite subject in this whole area is what happens to our loved ones afterwards. And, and this afterlife subject is fascinating, and it's one that suddenly becomes so heartrendingly crucial to someone that's lost someone to suicide. Um, I absolutely believe in that death is simply a portal to eternal life, and I've had some personal experiences when my mother died and feeling that, you know, the reality of the angels that came to get her and going into the room where Brian died and having that same mm. peaceful feeling. Um, but many people haven't had such definite affirming experiences. It's almost like we need to... And uh, I no. recently read a book called Life After Death, The Evidence by Dinesh D'Souza, yeah. that I'd recommend to anyone who has concerns or doubts about God or the afterlife. But, 
about the second part of this question in regard to what may be happening in the world of spirits for those who took their own lives is, is so very important. And I have, um, I just, I just feel like there's more hope in my book than anywhere I've ever found because yeah. I've compiled every little bit of hope that I found, <laughs> and it's it's just hard for me to imagine anything closer to hell than the condition of mind that prompts suicide. And the last thing anyone would want for a loved one is for them to go from one hellish condition to another, you know? Right. And I've been so relieved to find absolutely nothing in the Bible to verify the idea that our loved ones can't repent and progress uh, after they get on the other side, no matter. Oh, yeah. It seems like... But a lot of people just, you know, if they don't believe that, if they think that, you know, the last breath you take is it, that where is the hope? Then they're hopeless. And that's one of the things... I just want to to just absolutely let people know that there is hope. And I, I just believe with all my heart that it's possible for our loved ones to choose to do what it takes to repent and accept Christ even after death in this and otherwise, you know, it wouldn't make any sense for all the billions of people that died without even knowing right. about Jesus. That's got to be the place that they hear it and, and it get the chance to choose him. So it seems like, Darla, in the end, we have to make, um, I mean, it, it's the loss of somebody. We we need information that sometimes is harder to reach or some it's harder to get, like a, a, a confirmation a tangible confirmation that the person's still living after they've died. Yet that's you you have received that kind of witness, that idea through experiences, through deaths of other people, and you've also done it over time. It seems like this process um we don't necessarily want to wait until the death of somebody dear to us to start searching this out and learning it. We might want to be getting some of those answers now. Oh, I think that that is, is really, really crucial. I I can't even imagine facing this kind of a situation without faith and hope in Christ and, and looking toward the possibility of continued progress after death. And I just, I just stand with a host of witnesses that I have read and uh, that testify that they just, you know, that they've had experiences, the near-death experiences that are credible, there's just so many thousands of, of uh, experiences out there, but of course our own experiences are the most important. Mm-hmm. And as we really keep up this spiritual journey to ask God to help us, why we can we can have those experiences in our own mind and heart that that this is taking place, that our loved ones are doing well over there, that they're that they're not in some horrible place, you know. Right. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's, I guess, part of the problem, too, is just some of our beliefs, um, we, if we don't spend the time reading like you did and researching and then and then getting into your faith system where you could feel the peace, that's what's so interesting about it is, and I appreciate your story because you've gone through the work for you, and yet uh, the next person, somebody might be listening to this today and sadly find out that they just lost somebody and they're now going to have to go through that process on their own. In the end, being able, I guess that's your goal, is to share that, that there is a hope and um, maybe start other people on their own journey to find that hope. Yes, well, I think that the, the best thing that I uh, have to offer in, in my books is that I've been able to compile the best of the best. 
You know, most people are not, they're just not inclined to go out there and, and read 100 books. Right. And, and so I think that that has been a real gift to me from God, that that is something that, that I like to do. Yeah. And, so, and also that, that, uh, that gift of being able to comp- con- condense and, and hone in on the most important ideas and put them together in a way that saves people from all that research that I did, but they can still get the, the pearls, the real jewels, and, and I have the best scriptures, the best psychological ideas, the best grief work ideas mm. that I've found through all these years, and, and I, I reread this stuff a lot because we never get past the point where we need to be reminded and refreshed, and every time I do, I just thank God that I was given this opportunity to pull these things together in a way that's so meaningful and hopeful. Yeah, no, I I love it. And I appreciate the work you've done. And, I mean, really, I think you've taken something like the death of your child and turned it into something so positive and helpful to others and those in need. So, again, go to the website, DarlaIsaacson.com, and um, and go check out that book, Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide, Opening Your Heart to the Healing God Can Give. Uh, just a great resource for you as you're going through that very difficult time. We'll take a break, my friends, and uh, continue this discussion after the break. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the topic uh, that we were discussing of suicide, it's just such a, it's such a difficult topic, isn't it? And yet, folks, it's real. And we need in our world to know how to talk about real things. If we don't talk about real things, then, you know, a lot of these uh, sad statistics about suicide are going to continue because we just don't even know how to go there. And so we don't. It's, it's kind of like sex education. We don't know how to talk about it, so we don't talk about it. And then by not talking about it, we create problems where we need to talk about it. Anyway, you know what I mean. So here's some things. Let me just give you straight up uh, some, some tools right up front. If you uh, are feeling down and need help and you feel like you need uh, help the, and you're having thoughts of suicide, that life is not worth it. Let me give you a phone number. And one of my rules in life is always, you can always, I guess, choose to do what you want to do, except before you do, get some help, right? 1-800-273-8255. This is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 1-800-273-8255. If you uh, are feeling like you need to talk to somebody, that is a great resource there. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in 2013, uh, which is the the most recent year that we have data available, full data, 41,149 suicides were reported, making suicide the 10th leading cause of death for Americans. Tenth leading cause of death. In that year, someone in the country died by suicide about every 12.8 minutes. 
2013, the highest suicide rate was among 45 to 64-year-olds. The second highest rate occurred in those 85 and older. Think of those numbers, folks, 85 and older. So those you know, maybe are people that have illnesses. Um, but when we read and hear about uh, in the Scriptures, for example, the idea that we need to mourn with those that mourn, that we need to you know, succor the weak, take care of those that are, uh, that are hurting, this is probably who we're talking about. That's the idea. This is where we need to be focusing. You know, for many years, the suicide rate has been about four times higher among men than among women. Of those who have died by suicide in 2013, 78% of them were male. 22.1% are female. By the way, just a little biased view uh, as a relationship coach, that might simply be because um, maybe more women have the ability to talk to people. Men, maybe we're not as willing and as open, so we might be more prone to just go act. A little rule that I have when I coach people is anytime I hear a man or a young man, especially anytime I hear anybody talk about suicide, I worry. But when I hear a man talk about it, I really worry um, just because they are do have such a higher you know, incidence of of actually going through with it. In 2013, the highest U.S. Uh, suicide rate was among, among whites. The second highest rate was among American Indians and Alaska Natives. In 2012, the Associated Press uh, reported the suicide rate is now 12.6 suicide deaths per 100,000 Americans, which is about a 12.8% rate. Um, anyway... It's it's the real deal. So can I just suggest a few things, especially when it comes to suicide? When you have somebody around you, close to you, uh, commit suicide. We, we got some excellent advice from Darla Isaacson about educating yourself. Go study it. Go take some grieving classes. It's probably the perfect time to engage a counselor. And just go go spend some time sharing your feelings and your grief. A lot of times there was a, a, maybe sometimes a really hectic hard lead up to the death and the suicide of another person that was close to you. And that may have left some some ill feelings. Uh, maybe you had to show some tough love. And because of the tough love, they uh, they took that ultimate step. So some other things that we could probably do with each other is what if we would um, learn how to just talk about death a little bit more with other people? Uh, so I, I always do um, these classes where I teach people how to have difficult conversations. And I just notice where I notice I, I struggle the most in knowing what to say is at a funeral. Because a lot of times when we go to funerals and we're talking to somebody about death, we feel so uncomfortable that we don't know how to help them heal or how to help them feel normal. So we end up talking about stuff that we don't even want to talk about. Uh, I mean, just in a funeral of a of a grandparent of mine, I remember people standing around the casket talking about how good they looked. And I'm thinking, he's dead. He doesn't look great. He's healthy. He's not healthy. He's dead. But we do that and we, we talk, oh, he looks great. You know, doesn't he look good? But part of that is we, I think some of that is we just don't know what to say in that moment. So we, we're willing to say anything. A lot of times we give people advice you don't need to advise somebody that's mourning. 
you might want to just be vulnerable. You might just want to recognize what they're saying. You don't even need to philosophize. You don't need to theorize. You don't need to you know, make up a story that they're in heaven. They are. And they're, that God needed them up there. I mean, I get it. I'm a believer. I believe he does. And yet I don't. the story is not going to help the people around us heal. The way we help people around us heal is we have to be real. So one of the best, most real things I would just suggest that all of us try to do a little bit more is we just simply recognize when people are hurting and we just say, you know what, I can see you're hurting. Tell me what you're feeling and and just almost invite them to just share what they're feeling instead of saying, he looks really good and then they have to respond to that. What if we could just recognize when they're healing? I remember I had a really good friend when I was 21 years old that uh, died just a tragic accident. He had a heart issue, and he was out playing with a bunch of youth from our church congregation, and he just dropped down, dead. Heart, dead, stopped. And I remember going to his funeral when I was 21 years old, and one of my best friends was his older brother. And I remember standing in line, like, thinking, I don't know what to say here. What am I supposed to say? What do you say to somebody who just lost his brother? What do you say to the parents that I loved? And I didn't know what to say. Now, I guess I could have gotten up there and you know and said, he was really great and he did. But I just looked at him in the eyes and I said, I don't know what to say. And I just started to cry, 21-year-old crying kid. And I remember the parents just hugged me. I remember my best friend hugged me and he just said, dude, there's nothing we can say. There's nothing to say here. And we all just hugged each other right in front of uh, this casket and just cried and sobbed quite literally and it was the most healing thing that ever happened, I think, for them and for us, is because we didn't need to be fake about it. There's no story. There's no answer. There's no sense. It's just random. Then, interestingly, we went, a bunch of his friends, we went into a back room by, by invitation from his family. They handed us a recorder. We went and stood, actually sat, in a little room in the back of the cemetery or the mortuary, and we just told stories. And we started laughing, and we just laughed about 10 of us in a room and told the greatest stories ever about my good friend Paul. And it was so healing and so cathartic. And we felt bad because we were back there laughing, but I can imagine how hard that must have been for the parents to hear, except I found out later that it's one of the most healing things the family had because they could go listen to that audio and reminisce and remember and celebrate the life of their son And um, again, it doesn't answer the questions like Darla was getting into around suicide. It doesn't. But it created a catharsis. It got it out of us. So we, as a bunch of 20-something boys, we used humor to deal with the emotion. Darla earlier, she used writing and researching. Think about what you would use right now. Think about it. Even though you may not have a death in your family, what skills or tools would you draw to? Would you go to your faith? Would you go to your friends? If you have a really strong social network and friend network, that might be a great way to mourn. Uh, Would you use language? Would you use poetry? In the next hour, we're going to talk about the power of poetry. What would you use? But I want you to think about it now because there's going to be a day when you too will need to mourn. And if you have a faith system and a belief system, I'd turn to your faith system. I know with me, I would turn to God. That would help me understand a lot of it. 
And I would also have to turn to kind of my background in, in human development and psychology. But every one of us, we need to find some way to get through this. And can I just also challenge you with one more thing before we take a break? Let's start paying attention. Now, I don't think people are committing suicide because they're not, they're being ignored per se. But we need to start focusing more on mental health, right? We need to start doing more. And so um, as part of that, we probably need to be talking about suicide a little bit more. I've seen entire towns where two or three teenagers kill themselves and it destroys for a time a town. It tips them upside down. We need to talk more about it and we need to talk more about it preventatively. If you start seeing signs, if you see children, teenagers that are struggling, adults that are struggling, will you go up to them, recognize their emotion, tell them you care and give them any tools you can. One tool we're going to give you right now is a phone number, 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. That is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Another tool is just suicidepreventionlifeline.org, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Folks, we're here on this great big ball of mud with each other. It's not... Uh, we need each other. We need each other's help. We need a lift now and then. And again, we can lift all we want and people still have choice and agency. And it doesn't make them bad people if they make those decisions. They're just human. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after the break for a whole new hour of fun and entertainment and information right here on BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. I am your life coach, your guide on the side, your helper from Helper. That's called dead air right there. Have you been to Helper? I have. Okay. They don't call it Helper. They call it Helpa. Or Hooper. They call it Hoopa and Helpa. It's a regional dialect. Totally. Welcome to the program, everybody. Man, you know, it just amazes me. Which part? How much we can learn. One of the greatest things about this job, whether you're learning or not, let me tell you, we are learning. We are learning a lot. I love the show because I get to, I get such a different day. Every day is so different. It's like today I'm about to go talk to a poetry expert who's changing kids' lives. How cool is that? And you probably wouldn't have ran into this subject uh-uh. in your daily life. No. But I was watching. It's, it's, it's called Get Lit. It's a program that teaches teens literature through poetry. But they've got, if you go, it's just slam poetry. It's, it's really cool. It's from L.A. And they're empowering kids to find their voice. And when you see what these kids are thinking, it's it, it's a little shocking in a way, but honestly, they have a voice. And you just notice how many people nowadays are so upset because they don't have a voice. So it's just cool. I just feel like my mind is just constantly being stretched. And then I come talk to you guys. Right. And James fills me in about Milanka. You teach me about news. We talked last week. 
yeah, about, we, yeah. about Bitcoin. Yes. We had, a, we had an expert on explaining to us what Bitcoin is. What should is we Bitcoin? pay attention to Bitcoin? Right. Well, uh, U.S. Marshal Service today. Oh, boy. They uh, they announced the results of its third Silk Road Bitcoin auction. Silk Road, Silk Road is a uh, dark internet website. Ah. So it's, it's not the normal internet. It's a different type of version of the internet. You okay. have to have special software to access that. But that's where you go to buy... Uh, I guess most of it ended up being drugs and other illegal. Oh, so that's where that's the dark. It's, yeah, it's the so black they market call it the on dark, the internet. The dark internet. So yeah. Silk Road, it was shut down, but the purchases were made by using Bitcoin. So oh. when they shut it down, they confiscated a bunch of Bitcoin. How much did they get? They had to sell it off. Well, on Thursday, uh, the auction begins on Thursday. Two winning bidders. Took home, well, no, I'm, I'm reading this all wrong. They announced the results of its third Silk Road Bitcoin auction. The which It began last Thursday and okay. it's been going on since. Two winning bidders took home the bulk of the Bitcoin with one anonymous participant winning 27,000 Bitcoin. Wow, 27,000 times $200-ish. Yeah. Each Bitcoin, as we found last week, yeah. worth around $200. And so 27,000, The another winner took home 20,000 Bitcoin and... Uh, the wow. third winner took home about 3,000 Bitcoin. So uh, they're, they're not commenting as to how much the winning bids were at current market value. Three winners, Bitcoin worth $8 million, $5.9 million, and $900,000. Interesting new update. Uh, one Bitcoin equals $294. Ooh. It bumped up a little up bit about, over the yeah. last week. So Well, it's probably because of this. <laughs> probably because, because of the auction, yeah. So, uh, yeah, adjust the $8 million up. Yeah. Probably the I still nine, don't own a Bitcoin. Nine, yeah, I j- just so you know, I have had one dollar in my pocket for a week. One dollar. I have I have one dollar bill. How's that? That's all my wife lets me have. I'm kind of the same way. I don't really carry a lot of cash on yeah, me. I have a dollar, and I keep to... it in case there's an emergency. I don't know. You probably don't remember this, but when I was young, I used to carry a dime because you never knew when you'd need a call. Yeah. Now it's a buck. When I was in high school, that's how you'd call mom, was the pay phone yeah. down by the gym. Was it a quarter or a dime? It was a quarter. See, so, yeah, you're young. Yeah. Mine was a dime. And then if it worked. And now you like, James is like, what's a pay phone? Yeah, James is like, give me my $500 phone. What's going on? And I want it bejeweled. Yeah, so I just walk down, walk around with essentially $500 in my pocket. Yeah, you do. So. You do. Yeah. Someday you'll have a $10,000 watch for your $500 phone. I found this story this morning. The New York Times reports that the Chinese Communist Party leaders are deathly afraid that the Dalai Lama will not have an afterlife. Oh, great. They're worried enough this week officials repeatedly warned that he must reincarnate and on their terms. Party officials feel the communist government is the proper guardian of the Dalai Lama's uh-huh. secession sure. through an inc- intricate process of reincarnation that involves lamas, senior monks, visiting, and they all visit a sacred lake, a lake and uh, divining dreams. So let, let me get this. Let me make process. sure I get what you're saying. Uh, the Chinese government wants the Dalai Lama to uh, reincarnate and make sure he reincarnates, but they want his reincarnation on their terms because they want to then be able to, I guess, have more control again over Tibet. Yes. Um, They don't necessarily believe in the reincarnation, but they're playing along because they want the political influence over that region. You know what it reminds me of? It sounds crazy that a government would try to 
you know, you know, legislate reincarnation. It does. It's almost like, though, uh, you know, our government trying to legislate the Internet. Yes. You know, in, in some ways, it's just hard to do. Yeah. Now, this all flared up hmm. because, as it says, party functionaries were yes. incensed by the exiled Dalai Lama's recent speculation that he might end his spiritual lineage and just not reincarnate. Wow. He's like, I don't, maybe I just won't do it. Hmm. And, uh, this, I didn't know it worked that way. I, uh, this is all new to me. It says, confounding the Chinese government plans to engineer a succession that would uh, produce a 15th Dalai Lama who accepts the Chinese government presence and policies in Tibet. So that's really, again, they want the political advantage. Yeah. So they want their guy to be the new Dalai Lama. So when you reincarnate, it has to be this guy. Man. So he'll be, you know, in the party. Again, I think they're missing the point. You got you to gotta have the spirit. You got to have the right spirit. So Tibet is free. Yeah. Then the Dalai Lama would gladly reincarnate and come back. I just I thought this was a, China. a unique problem that they have to deal with in China. That's interesting. It's just a great solution. Research, researchers at the, at the CIA have been working secretly to decrypt and penetrate security systems installed on some of Apple's wireless devices since early as 2006, according to NSA leak or NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. So they've been mm. trying to break into the iPhones and the the Apple network of devices. It, it, can they help me set up my email? Probably. They probably really would like to. And yeah, they could, I bet they... They could look into it. The Snowden Report reveals that researchers from the CIA and the NSA have been meeting annually at a secret conference to share Apple-focused research, the purpose to which is to provide important information to developers trying to circumvent or exploit new security capabilities. Recently, Apple made it so that they can't even get into your phone. It's really? your password that, that protects, you, protects you. And they do that so that they don't have to give anything to the NSA when they come knocking oh, the door. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that takes it out of their hands. Do, I mean, do you believe that? That That's the truth? I mean, I think we need someone to call when it all goes bad. I got Well, I mean, there's processes where you can unlock your phone. Okay. But they give you about two-step you know, two authentication, yeah, right. different things yeah. like that. But the Apple itself doesn't have that information. It's probably cleaner to just stay out of it. I mean, if you just saw what Hillary Clinton got into because of her email, I'm sure Apple doesn't want that. I, I've read where, uh, or, you know, directors of the CIA, leaders in those areas have, have said it is um, uh, helping the terrorists by having these security features. They need a, a backdoor into the oh, system interesting. So you can't, they to can't, help keep America yeah. safe. And yeah. Apple is saying, we want to keep our customers safe from you. Interesting. See, that's why, though. Uh, see, you're, yeah, you're aiding and abetting. Yeah. Interesting. They're trying to turn that public opinion away from uh, the government being bad and that this company is bad. I'm telling you, secu- I mean, every one of us are, it's so different what we would actually tolerate now as far as access to our information. And it just seems like it's almost kind of inevitable that you're just going to keep giving up more and more and more until eventually they're inserting a chip in your Or a, wa- your a, wa- a watch on your wrist. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Or a watch on your wrist. Yeah. As it tracks your health and stores data on your daily activities. We don't want to start a conspiracy. I'm just pointing out things that happened. We will, however, perpetuate a few. Uh, here's the deal. Great guest coming up. Diane Lane is going to be joining us. And Diane is um, is basically the founder of a program for at-risk teens in L.A. to help them use poetry to, to find their voice. 
It's called uh, Get Lit Performers. It's an award-winning classic teen poetry group. They performed over 20,000 teens yearly. When we come back, uh, it's an interesting way to create literate children that can uh, not only read, write, but also speak. And heaven forbid, we need a lot of that, don't we? We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, Diane Lane up here next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are trying to get Diane Lane, our guest, on from Get Lit, which is a uh, it's it's an inner I guess not even an inner city, but it's a it's a it's an organization for troubled youth in Los Angeles, and uh, they they use poetry to help these kids find their voice. I mean, when you think about it, there's a very fine line between poetry, right, and rap. And um, just any kind of performance, singing performance. So uh, great organization. And we were going to have Diane Lane on. And as we're trying to get her on, one of the things I wanted to talk about is it's it's really hard, especially when you see what's going on right now in Wisconsin, in Ferguson, um, with with a certain percentage of our population feeling disenfranchised in a way, feeling like they're not fully uh, integrated and accepted. And then we don't, you know, you don't always understand what's going on. How can that be? How can somebody just not feel, you know, connected and integrated? And so one of the things I have found just in my own life is there are certain people that to me, it just, I I remember when I was a teen and I felt like I wasn't old enough to have a voice that seemingly mattered. Nobody was listening. And yet I I felt insecure because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I felt lost, kind of just wandering, not quite sure where I fit in, where I belonged. And so one of the things that um, our guest Diane Lane does with her organization, GetLit.org, is she helps people, especially youth, find themselves and their voice. And I wanted to, while uh, we're, we're doing this, I wanted to think about, and you to think about, who who lit your fire? Who got you motivated and got you to believe in you? Who was it that made you think, wow, you know what, I could, I could do something with my life. Do you remember the moment you realized you could even go to college? Do you remember the moment you realized you had gifts? Who was it that lit that fire, and what specifically did they do? James, do you have someone in your life that just turned it on for you? I would say um, – I would have to say my parents, first of all. that They were, they were very motivating and, and helped me and inspired me to achieve more. Yeah, were they good at like walking you th- through your gifts and your talents and – yeah, yeah, and they're they're really encouraging with with uh, everything that I wanted to do because I'm number six of eight kids. Yeah, and so and but you're the favorite. I heard. Yeah, exactly. I, I made definitely uh, had my parents say that to me every day. It was very reassuring. Um, but it's a horrible parenting tip. <laughs> but it's a great. It was a great thing for your psyche. And I'll just say this: I'm very entitled. I think <laughs> anyway. Um, no, but but since I was like so far back in the line that. 
like all of my older siblings had already done everything by the time I was at oh, that really? stage. Yeah. yeah. So like my older oldest brother did sports. My other siblings did like music and yeah. academics and all that kind of stuff. And so when it got to me and kind of going through like middle school, high school and, and different stages, you know, I just – You're the only one that hadn't danced. I mean you're the only – nobody had danced. Exactly. So then that's where Lord of the Dance and the whole – The tap dancing yeah. and the clogging – and all this, all that stuff. But but the thing is that they were very supportive because I kind of t- did kind of a potpourri approach. Did you? Yeah. You tried everything. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, did they did they like see as a parent I would kind of shun that like Ugh, we don't need to try everything. James. Just just fall in line. <laughs> just just do what they. Do. Just a lot of carpooling. Yeah, exactly. But that's cool that your parents were the supportive ones. I mean, a lot of times parents just don't get you. Yeah. So they they were one. Did you have a an experience? I had an experience in. I I struggled, no one would believe this, in high school because I was I just liked being social. And I, I thought school was for, you know, chumps. I didn't like it. Interestingly, I've got like all these degrees now. Yeah, you have a PhD. Got all these, yeah. But part of it was simply um, it, I was just not studying anything that was, was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But I remember going to um, a local university here in Salt Lake City called Westminster College which at the time was um, hard to get into and kind of expensive. But I was doing it because uh, I couldn't get accepted to the other universities in town, which I thought was rude. And the anyway, I took a class in public speaking, and I don't even remember the teacher's name, but I remember taking one class and having about eight speeches I was supposed to deliver. I think there was about 14 people in the class. And I remember doing my first speech and nailing it and not even knowing. I I mean, I just did what I do. You know what I mean? But it was the coolest thing because this teacher came up to me and she took me aside and she says, you know, you're very gifted in this. You could be. You're very gifted in this. And it was my first year in college and and my professors basically saying, you could do this. If you want to do this, you could do this. And right there, that's all I needed to hear. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I can do this. And so I started speaking more and speaking more, and my confidence boosted. And then my grades started going up, and finally I'm getting good grades. And then, by the way, I had to go take a biology class, failing it miserably. (laughs) But I tried to speak my way out of it. But all of a sudden, I just needed one teacher. I needed one idea and – once I had that idea, that inspiration, um, it led to more and it led to more and it led to the next thing and it led to the next thing. So then I left the country, went on a mission, came back uh, after two years, went up to the university that now I could get into because I had had a good year. And um, I knew exactly the area I generally wanted to be. I knew I, it needed to be something around communication. Anyway, it only took one person. And that one person didn't – they don't, they don't even know me. They don't know, they don't know anything about me. They don't know I – don't, I don't know them, but it changed my life. So what is the power of one person and how can one person just light someone's fire emotionally, professionally? So one of the things I just suggest to all of us as we're, as we're driving around, living a life – I mean you might be the one they're all looking up to. Right, you might be the one that they're saying, "I want a job like you. I want to be like you." How do you help? How do you hand that down? How do you pass it along? Is um, one of the ideas 
We're talking about this hour. How do we become a change in the lives of others? Again, we're taking the inspiration from Diane Lane, who saw a need in in uh, you know kind of big city schools where they were cutting back certain things, cutting back certain you know programs, and she wanted these kids to not lose poetry programs. So she decided she's just going to piece together an awesome program. That's changing the lives of youth and giving them a voice. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion of changing the world one person at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Inspiring others, and uh, everybody needs somebody that they can kind of look to for a little light, a little guidance, a little inspiration. One of the things that we've been discussing in the studio during breaks is, you know, maybe the idea of inspiring another person, um, you can't just want to inspire somebody, right? Inspire, actually means that you put the spirit back in someone. Inspire means that the spirit is in there. So if your goal is to go inspire people or motivate people, um, it, you might be missing the boat. I mean, I, I, again, I do a lot of public speaking. I never want to be called a motivational speaker. Now, motivation is a feeling that tends to come from, you know, proper thinking and If I can get your thoughts in the right place, it might create a sense of motivation. But in the end, maybe what we need on this earth are fewer motivators and maybe truly find some principles, some tools to inspire another person. So during the break, James asked me a really interesting question. What? Do you remember your question, James? Uh, Was it how do you inspire someone? Yeah. So what are the principles? Yeah, what are the principles of inspiration? I mean – I I mean, I guess it's just a really great song to images of nature. (laughs) That's one way to do it. Pets that need to be adopted that are looking really sad. Yeah. And a Sarah McLaughlin kind of number. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) That's very inspiring. Okay. That's one way to do it. Another one, another way that I have found that is the most inspiring people to me are people that actually are passionate about something. Number one way to inspire another human being is to just have passion. If I have passion about what I do, that might create a fire or a a spirit inside of you. Then you might have passion to want to do what I do or to, you know, to go do your version of what I do. So one way is passion. Another way is just, I call it just basic principles. One of the most inspiring things I've seen are people that just know who they are and they're there and they, and they know what they're going to do and they know why they've got to do it because if they don't offer their gift, no one's going to get it. That's inspiring. Another thing that inspires big time is just simply having um, the vision to know what you want in life. 
and how you want to influence people in life. So think about it. The people around you, do they see your passion? Do they recognize your principles? Do they, do they believe that you actually believe in them? That's one of the greatest things I think we can do with our youth is just simply believe in them more. So we finally have our, our guest on the phone, Diane Lane. We've, uh, we've, we've been trying to get her on the line, finally got a hold of her. She is um, such, to me, an inspiring person. She, you know, if you imagine poetry, you know, Wordsworth, Whitman, and you just take those words and you maybe bring them into today's modern day, you, you may be, except, you know, starting to get a taste of what Diane Lane brings to the world. She is uh, basically the founder of a program in South Carolina or South Cal- Southern California that is the leading nonprofit. It's called Get Lit. And it is a tool, as, as the founder and executive director, she uses it as a tool to help empower our, our teens, our youth, help them find their voice, and uh, to use poetry as a way to help at-risk teens. And we wanted her to get on the phone with us today. Again, Diane Lane, thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I, I'm so inspired by what you do. Earlier we were talking about inspiration. And, I mean, your goal basically is to give youth a voice and a way to express through poetry. Exactly. Yeah, we say scholars, not statistics. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that's simple, isn't it? Tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me how the program works. Right now, it's, it's mainly in Southern uh, California in the Los Angeles area. But I, I mean, I see it on television. I, I see a lot of your, your graduates of your programs and some of, some of your award winners. Just talk about the program. Teach us how it came to be. What drove you to, to want to make this change with these kids? In my early 20s, I had an actress, Vivica Linforce. She was a, a Broadway actress and in a lot of movies, too. She was 72 years old, but she was from Europe and a very youthful, exciting type of person. And she, um, I was an actress in New York City, but I had never liked poetry at all. And she performed um, Whitman live. Oh, wow. And, and it was so extraordinary, and it was the first time I ever really understood a poem, and it meant so much to me. And she ended up adopting my 20-year-old theater company, my filled, filled with 20-year-olds, and sort of turning us into a guerrilla poetry troupe. <laughs> so we all memorized all these classic poems and performed them throughout New York City. And it was so empowering for me to have these great words inside of me and have a way to get some feelings that I wasn't able to process out and sort of turn them into art and move other people. And I, I thought, you know, all those years that I had spent looking at, oh, Captain, my Captain, Walt Whitman mm. in high school, and just hating all these dead white poets, <laughs> um, you know, they meant nothing to right. me. They bored me like they do so many kids. And to experience it this way, it really, it, it just made me realize that, um, there was such a missed opportunity. All those kids that are in high school going through so much. Um, if we could take that work and, and introduce them to some great work and use it as a springboard to help them create their own great work, hmm. suddenly they're not lost 
lost years, they're, they're really important years for development, and those kids could go on and maybe have a chance to have a, a great life. Well, than... and you can see it, really, because they're not, they're, they get writing skills, but they also, their verbal skills are incredible, and even their presentation, these are all skills that need to be used in corporate America anyway. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Sometimes the biggest transformation comes from kids you'll never see on a stage, mm. ever. But suddenly they can stand up in front of their peers without their hair in their face and, and rocking back and forth. And they'll have to do that no matter what occupation they they pursue. They'll have to be able to stand in front of people and communicate how they feel. And And there's so many things kids get out of it. But sometimes kids are going through enormous um, pressure and problems and nobody has any idea. And so we go in and we, we have a bunch of poems and we say a classic isn't a classic because it's old, but because it's great. Uh-huh. So we'll go in with some old poems, but also some contemporary poets and Tupac and it, it doesn't matter. We'll go in and we'll, we'll, we'll read a lot of things out loud and we call it claiming your poem. The student will raise their hand for the, the poem that, that hits them, that reaches them. And surprisingly, it's often an excerpt of Goethe, or it's, mm. it's Longfellow, or it's something that you would never expect in Watts, that this, <laughs> this old piece is going to yeah. connect with this person. But if their mom is dying, and and they, it's a poem about death, then they will, they will gravitate towards that poem. And sometimes that's the first time other students in the class realize what's going on in that person's life, or even the teacher. And it becomes... It just it, it completely transforms the classroom because suddenly people are aware of what what everyone is else is going through and it 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 brings everybody sort of together. There's a teacher who says our kids are going through so much and it's hard to focus on trigonometry if you don't have a way to get some of that out. Right. And once you do, you're freer to um, to um, do what you need to do in trigonometry and chemistry and history and the other subjects. It's so true. I mean, and really, what are we trying to do in education anyway but raise healthy humans, you know, and and make right. them be able to contribute? And so, yeah, the, the ability to process your thoughts and, get, and, and process this emotion and find your voice and, and then let the voice let, and be healed by being able to share your voice. Wow. What right. a great thing. Exactly. Yeah, and turn it into art, because no one wants to listen to anybody complain. Right. That's not powerful. Yeah. But if you can turn those feelings into a poem or into a song or a painting or some, some, some kind of art that you can share, well, then you're not a victim anymore. Then you're a leader. You're a healer. You're a scholar. You're a teacher. You're using it to transform someone else's life. And that's power. Mm. That's a shift. That is so true, and and again, it's I I just think in a in the United States where we have this weird divide, really, where we we don't necessarily understand diff, each other's culture. We don't blacks may not understand what the whites or the whites may not understand what the blacks are going through. In like we always talk about Ferguson and and even you know Compton and inner city and. Um, it's such a brilliant play for me. I sat yesterday and watched four probably. I don't know, 45 minutes of just different presentations from your group. And I thought, wow, every human needs to see these. I mean, some of them will shock the average, you know, conservative person. But but honestly, um, it also you could just see the humanity and the energy and the desire for people to be 
uh, heard and accepted. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. it's really powerful. I mean, you've, you've kind of cornered it, right? I mean, it's, I tell you, it's very, it's very, um, humbling because I get to work with people with, I don't really believe that just because someone's 12, they have nothing to say or they don't have any power. I meet kids all the time that are, they have life experiences, they have certain kind of wisdom or they have certain gifts that I will never have. So I'm always around people that I'm learning from. And we give opportunity, we just give these young people an opportunity to step up and inspire each other and be leaders. We don't say, you have to wait until you're 22 until right. you can really have any power in this world. That's just not true. And so it, it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing to watch someone that in the past was just treated maybe like a victim. Oh, you poor person yeah. who's poor. Well, it's like, no, okay, that's your story. Step up, get it out, turn it into art, and now go into other schools. We Our, our kids, um, once they find their voice and they start becoming active and, and proficient in this kind of work and power, they build their power, well, then they go into other schools and they perform and they start mm. teaching other kids. And they have impact and reach that I will never have yeah. just because they share certain stories and even their youth and all kinds of things. They, so it's just really neat. We had one of our boys, Ryan, who um, his family's from Bangladesh. He's first generation. He's never had a, a bed before. He's, he's always slept on the side of his parent on the floor on the side of his parents' bed. Well, all he knows is that he's he's a hero. He's a leader. He's <laughs> right. a, he's a, a rapper, but he's also um, a great poet. And so he goes into these schools, and kids are just screaming for him. Oh, that's cool. So he's not the ben- kid from Bangladesh that sleeps on his parents' floor. He's a rock star that just graduated college that's transforming so many people's lives. Mm. So it's, I just think it's important to see people as um, in their power and not that not perpetuate a victim story. Yeah, right. And, and again, yeah, because we don't need more victim stories, but we need, we need leadership. And, and I think yeah. that's one of the keys to what you're doing, Diane. Let's take a break. Can you stick with us through the break, Diane? Of course. Okay, hang with us. Uh, we're going to come back and continue discussing more from Get Lit slam poetry and the power of uh, creating leaders empowered with voice you know folks this is one idea in one city that's just spreading let's we've all got ideas let's start pushing changing our our youth giving them a voice and and maybe getting rid of some of the victim stories we'll take a break we'll be right back more with diane lane right here on the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Trying to help you uh, see how just a little, you know, a little coaching in the right place, a little leadership from one person can go a very, very long way. On the phone uh, is one of these leaders. Diane Lane is the founder and executive director of Southern California's leading nonprofit, Get Lit. And has discovered an amazing power in poetry, helping at-risk kids. She, um, now these kids now, over time, it looks like, have uh, performed for over 20,000 other teens. And they do that yearly. Every year they're reaching um, 20,000 other teens, as she was just explaining. Diane, thank you for coming back. Sure. It really is. Um, I mean, it's interesting how one person, 
you know, back east, one actor inspires you, gets you into this the power of poetry, and then you you come and 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 start making it, you know, connecting with others. It's it's and it ignites. Talk about how your program works. I guess the kids come in and, and just kind of walk us through how they get to a point where they get proficient, and then you send them out teaching. Um. So we have a, a curriculum that's in about 50 schools, 40 high schools, and 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 um, then additional middle and elementary schools. And so um, we do have Get Lit mentors, and we teach the curriculum ourselves at certain schools. But we're able to cover a lot of ground because we actually train English and drama teachers that are in existing schools. Mm. So we have a lot of professional development. We teach them to, to teach the curriculum, and then they bring it to their own schools. So it might be one whole English department at a high school or just a ninth grade or a drama department at for the 11th grade or the whole school. Or Every school is different. Mm-hmm. But in that way, um, about 7,000 kids take the curriculum, the full curriculum, every year and graduate from it. And some students, like I said before, are very shy and you'll never see them on a stage, but suddenly they're reading or they can stand up in front of other people or um, they like poetry for the first time. So um, after that, they can, if they want to, go on and compete for something called the Classic Slam. They can try out to represent their school in sort of a citywide festival. And um, we have about 40 teams compete every year Hmm. and thousands of people come. There's scholarships. It's a really big deal. It spans three days. And um, at the Classic Slam, we meet some of the best young poets in the city. Um, on final stage, there's four teams, and sometimes we'll meet we'll meet teams from we'll meet teams from the teams that win, from some of the teams that don't win, but they'll just stand out. But we invite kids, whether you win or lose, um, if you're interested, to come try out to be a Get Lit player. Hmm. And that program is on Saturdays, and those kids get about 350 hours of additional training every year. And um, about 15 kids are accepted every year, and those kids go on to perform all over the country. Wow. I mean, isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I look at that. It's almost like it's it's a program, like a traditional kind of debate program, that, but that's teaching these certain skills and uh, like even even something like debate could get scholarships and and now all of a sudden poetry is taking uh, even a competitive side to it, but yet also allowing these kids to find their voice and be creative. It's powerful. Yeah, and so one of our poets, Junior Herrera, he started as a junior in high school, and he stayed with Get Lit for his junior year, his senior year, he went on to local community college, he continued with Get Lit, he became a mentor, he got involved with the speech department at his um, college, at his community college, and he went on to be the the California state champion, the number one um, person, and nationally he's also... um, He's the number one community college speaker in California, but he's won several gold medals in the country yeah. as well. So, yeah, and then he got a full ride through all that. He got a full ride to um, Kentucky State or something. Unbelievable. So it's, yeah, it's neat to see the kids turn all of this experience into things that can really help them. In the yeah, future. a profession even. I mean, mm-hmm. he's now a speaker and can go on tour. Um, well, I, I think it's powerful. And again, you know, Diane, without a leader uh, that's passionate and inspiring, that gets it and that believes in others, this wouldn't have happened. So 
uh, my congratulations to you and thank you for for being willing to you know open up all of our minds and our eyes oh you're welcome you're welcome it's i'm very thankful to the great teachers that i've had like vivica for example that inspire something that have that inspired something in me hopefully i can inspire someone else and then they'll go on to do it it's a good cycle you totally did it and keep up the great work again if anyone wants information about uh, Diane, you can go to Diane's website, dianelubylane.com, dianelubylane.com, or go to the getlit.org uh, website where you can find more out about their program. It's uh, It really is. It's enlightening. It's also really interesting to go see what, um, what, other, what these kids are thinking, what these inner city kids are thinking and um, at-risk kids are thinking. It's it's interesting. And, you know, we everyone's so down. Oh, the rappers, those darn rappers. It's it's a voice, folks, and people need to be heard. And if, if you're not going to listen to them, then I mean, if poetry is how you'll hear it, then, then go support Get Lit and their poetry. And uh, also do the same thing with your own kids. Let them have a voice. Um, as we wrap up the show, we we always kind of like to do a little uh, wrap up. Let me let me talk to Terry. Terry, do you have any any late breaking news? Anything that we have to cut in on? That's we just got to get out there. Uh, you have a love from McDonald's. Oh, totally. They're going to introduce kale to their menu. Well, there goes my love. Possibly. Really? Industry analysts are leaking information. It was in some uh, earnings report. Someone uh-huh. left a note kind of sitting there talking about that. Yeah, I know. It was kind <laughs> about of kale. deep in some uh, financial papers that in the not-too-distant future that kale will be part of the menu. Why kale? Why are we starting there? Um, they're trying to attract a healthy right. clientele yeah. to get away from their non-healthy reputation. Okay. So you could see it in a salad. You could see it in uh, a kale smoothie. Maybe kale chips. These are the different options that could be out okay. there. Are they deep fried? Do they have kale fries? Deep um, fried? I don't know if they're going to fry things. It kind of moves away from the healthy end of things yeah. when you dip them in boiling fat. As uh, the, the a statement from the fast food restaurant, or the rust restaurateur, as yeah. the article I was reading called them, as we continue to listen to our customers, we're always looking at new and different ingredients that they may enjoy. Well, I, I you got to applaud McDonald's because they're, right. they're learning. They're trying. That's... Cool. I mean, and honestly, if McDonald's leads it, then Burger King will have the kale burger, right? That'll be great. Well, folks, that's the show. Go get yourself some kale. Good learnings, good lessons, I think, for all of us. Thanks for being here. Remember, we can't do the show without you. And remember, the goal is to keep learning and loving and leading our lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow right here on BYU Radio.